This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time for another edition of the KC Bobcast, this time featuring Kansas City, Missouri City Manager Troy Schulte. Troy has been with the city since the late 90s in various positions and has seen Kansas City change from a downtown that nobody knew existed to one of the booming downtowns in all of the Midwest. And there's still more to go, from developing a new airport to building a new convention center to the possibility of having downtown baseball. The face of Kansas City is always changing, and Troy Schulte is at the forefront. In the next 45 minutes, we'll talk to Troy Troy Schulte about the ever-changing face of downtown. We'll find out what Kansas Cityans can expect from the new airport and what the new big project will be for downtown KC Mo. Plus, we'll also talk about the likelihood of the Kansas City Royals playing baseball in downtown. Here's my conversation with city manager Troy Schulte. You've been with Kansas City, Missouri since 1998. We're talking 20 years you've been with this city now. Did you ever think KC Mo would look like it does today when you, when you got here about 20 years? No, it's it's been a phenomenal transformation. I can remember uh, I was an entry level a city employee five fifteen on Wednesday night. I could not find someone to take a five dollar bill to ride the bus back from downtown back on a Wednesday night, the place was just sealed up tighter than a drum, so it's come a long ways. It's a phenomenal transformation. Was it like that night that you had the awakening and they're like, ah, we've got to do something down here? I think everybody knew for decades we needed to do something. Downtown had started to really fall apart in the 1970s, and it was a mass exodus, and so it was always figuring out how how to do it and who was going to be the the lead. Uh, You know, AMC was tried to put together a plan that never went anywhere it wasn't until uh, mayor barnes found h&r block to be the corporate citizen back in 2004 and the cordish companies from baltimore to come in and take the risk and we had a whole there was a whole lot of risk to take it was a whole lot of just parking lots wig shops haunted houses there wasn't much down there and they took a they took a big risk coming downtown and it's paid off for everybody. I don't think Kay gets enough credit for what she did. I mean, she she basically came in and, and had a job to do, and that was to reestablish downtown. And boy, did she do that job. You she know? was singularly focused. I had the pleasure of working with her, and she was singularly focused. And we would raise issues about, because I was in the budget office at the time, we'd raise issues about financing. And she, she'd chew me out and say, you know, we're going we're gonna to get this thing done. And so uh, she, was, she, was a, when she, she was a man on a mission. Uh, to get that done, and she was singularly focused, and she spent four years, and the results are we're, we're enjoying the results of it today. What's the pitch like to Cordish Company? You got this downtown that literally has nothing. The, the, the before and after pictures side by side are, are awesome. If anybody's ever seen them, what do you pitch to this company from Maryland to say, "Hey, buy into us. We're going to do good things." Well, one of the you know one of the things that they did at the time was they basically said, "We think there's a lot of potential." They looked at you know the geographical location. The base that the employment base that was down there, the fact that there's been a lot of desire going back decades to do something in downtown, and they and to Cordish's benefit, and they're having that conversation now about the three light and the subsequent residential towers. The city negotiated a deal that said basically invest now and we'll be long term partners and let you be a long term beneficiary of the growth in downtown. That's why they were the beneficiaries of a 99-year development agreement. We've never done a 99-year development agreement in 150 years in the city. But Cordish, because they were willing to take a risk and put $300 million of their own money into this thing, uh, you know, are, are reaping the uh, benefits now. But they took a risk when no one else was willing to. And I mean no one was willing to step forward and do a... Uh, uh, make the investment that Cordish did and others did. So, so why? So why do we hear the complaints about them all the time? Oh, I think people have. Uh, I think people forget just how for, what what it was like 14 years ago when that development agreement yeah. was done. They say, well, we don't have to spend any more money downtown. Look at how all how all this stuff is has developed. And and the argument I always make is, well, the reason 
uh, downtown's in the condition it is is because the city made a long-term commitment to upgrade the infrastructure, and they made a long-term commitment to their development partners that we would be partners going forward. So uh, just because people's memories are much shorter than they need to be and people don't remember back what it was like, right. uh, they think, well, downtown's done. We're, we don't have to spend any more uh, public dollars down there, we can, you know, and that's not how it works. You look at other cities around the country, they're still investing in their downtown. If downtown, if downtown's strong, the rest of the city's inherently going to be stronger. I remember, you know, obviously working in sports radio, the, the Sprint Center was a big thing for us to try to get that developed and how hard we worked trying to push that was going to be the right thing. And I remember being on the, uh, right off the plaza there in that park with the big fountain, and it was, it was a guy named Paul Danaher, I think is the name, that if yes. I'm not mistaken, I remember getting like face to face with that guy and screaming in his face about why we needed to pass this arena and vote for this arena. And you're smirking at me right now. Like, like was he a city council guy? I just remember him being like a stooge in this whole thing. He was a city council member, and he was one of those that uh, at the time, very good guy, but he was, he was just against spending public money. He thought we had a perfectly good arena down in the West Bottoms at Kemper Arena, and he was just adamant that we not spend the dollars. I think on that vote, he uh, he was outvoted on the city council. I, I think it was a 12-to-1 vote, if I remember right, yeah. with Paul voting in opposition. So. <laughs> but that was such a big thing, and that came here, and, and it's opened the doors to so many great things, I think, in Kansas City that we wouldn't have if it wasn't for that. But the one thing... You know, I, I say this a lot, and I think a lot of people agree. Why does it take so long to get things done in this town? Well, I think one of the issues is you've, the, the time horizon and, and, and marshalling the capital. Uh, the Sprint Center was a $276 million deal. So you've got to go out and find a private partner. You've got to go out and find the site. You've got to secure the votes, uh, the necessary approval from the voter population to spend $226 million, which is what the city did. So those ting- those timelines back up when you can only have elections on certain dates. You've got to have 100 days before uh, that election dates when the f- ordinance has to and you just start backing the calendar up. It's not... Um, it's not surprising that projects take uh, two, five, seven years. Our convention center hotel, uh, we actually started a public process back in 2007. We just had the groundbreaking in 2018. It's a long time. We were negotiating with a developer for seven years, and conversations about a second uh, downtown convention center hotel started in this city in earnest in 1991. So uh, it takes time to marshal both the public support, the private support, and the political support to move these projects forward. But in the end, everyone goes, well, why didn't we do that earlier? Right. Yeah, because it always works out. And and it seems like we waste so much time that we could have these projects underway fighting about whether or not these projects are good. And that brings me to my whole, like, I guess, philosophy for the region. And you as city manager, Troy, would probably have a better feel of this than I would. But I think the state line kills us in this town, more so than any other city in America. And... I want to create a district here in Kansas City where we're not Kansas, we're not Missouri, we're like Washington, D.C. You got Jackson, you got Cash, you got Platt, Wyandotte, Clay, all together and make it one big district. How much better would our city be if that was possible? Oh, I think, I think that's a huge issue because we're a uh, metropolitan area of about 2.2 million uh, is the last estimate I saw, and we are literally half on the Kansas side, half half on the Missouri side. So it creates all of these issues you see these border war conversations about companies moving across the state line back and forth i've literally been involved in conversations where a company was going to move across the street from kansas into missouri Uh, and it's one of those it's a surreal we're unlike any other metropolitan area that has it there are some times when you can marshal resources if there's a big um, objective that the region wants when you can marshal four United States senators and, uh, you know, 10 or 12 uh, congressional representatives on these big issues. Uh, but those are rare. And most of the time, uh, we've been, we spend a lot of time kind of picking at one another as opposed to saying, what's good for the region? Yeah. I'm a firm believer that if, if there is growth and development in downtown Kansas City or in anywhere in Kansas City, it's going to be good for Olathe. It's going to be good for Platte City. It's going to be good for Liberty. It's going to be good for Grandview. And the same thing is if there's growth and development in Olathe, that's good for Kansas City because those people are going to want to bring, when, they're, when they have people come into town, they're going to probably want to bring them down to the, go to the Sprint Center, ride the streetcar, go to the Power and Light District, those types of issues. So, you know, we've got to figure out 
how to move people around this region. That state law, state line creates a benefit, an impediment for us to move people across, from a public transportation standpoint. Sure. But it's you know it's like anything you kind of you know you play with the cards you're dealt, and that's an interesting one that we've got in this metropolitan area. Uh, we can either turn it into a strength, like you said, that city-state concept is, an, is kind of a great idea to really just kind of refocus, especially when you look at the kind of the dysfunctionality you're seeing at the federal level, the state levels, both states, yeah. and where work is getting done, where the region is moving forward is a whole lot of good people at the local level, both on the Kansas side and on the Missouri side, uh, kind of working together and saying, rolling up our sleeves and saying this is important for the region. And that's where the, that's how this region's moving forward. Do you see a day where we will be like one just region where Johnson County will be voting on things that benefit Jackson County and vice versa, and will be kind of that city, state, that district that that I'd like to see? Oh, I think it will. It, whether it's enough, whether it's ever done as a kind of a political, in a formal political entity, that could be a hundred years from now. But I think you'll start to see this conversation move forward about what we did with Union Station, that bi-state approach a couple right. of, we did. That's now now over 20 years ago. I think there's a model in there, whether it's, um, whether it's the arts, whether it's education, whether it's economic development. I think you'll see some of those issues. Transportation's a huge one where we've got to come together as a region to start looking at public transportation. I've got a whole lot of people in Kansas City, Missouri, that can't get to jobs affordably that are located in south, southwest Johnson County. The best way for all of us to get together is figure out how do we get a public transportation system that can get where our workers live to where the jobs are. And so I think there will be the, the economics of the region will force us to kind of collaborate as we move forward, whether the, the formal political structure ever takes place. But the, the economics will drive that decision making a long time. All right. Long, yeah. well, let's pick up on that, because obviously it's, it's something that I wanted to touch on. We do it a little bit later on, but we've got a nice start right now with with this streetcar line. I mean, it's, it's overshooting everybody's estimates. Nobody expected it to do what it's doing. I mean, everybody's riding it. People love it. People make trips to go ride the streetcar. For, you know, I mean, it's crazy. So how do we take that and expand it? I'm not saying we need a New York subway system or a Chicago type of subway system, but there's got to be something better that we can do in a fast period of time that will connect this area because I think that's next to expanding this region and making it better. Yeah, I think the... You know, right now Kansas City is uh, is is going to the polls over the next couple of months to um, extend the streetcar from Union Station down to basically 51st or UMKC. Right. Uh, and that creates kind of a spine. And from there, I think you can start to have the conversation about whether it's regional rail. That, that concept was promoted a couple of years ago in Jackson County about trying to get commuter rail from the eastern suburbs into that spine spine there's been talk about commuter bus service or heavy rail uh, bringing passengers up the i-35 corridor so that again they connect into i-35 we've had some conversations about with some of our uh, suburban communities that are uh, in close adjacency to kansas city missouri but they're just on the kansas line that would love to see a streetcar line extended say um west through the country club plaza down shawnee mission parkway over into mission kansas those types of issues and i think all of it are feasible it's again the time horizons by the time you marshal the local resources get the necessary federal funds which in this day and age is easier said than done sure, yeah but i think if there's a vision and people buy into the vision a lot of this will start to come to uh, a fruition you know one of the conversations we're having now is um as we build our new terminal up at KCI, what's the best way for us to get people uh, from downtown or from other parts of the metropolitan area to the terminal? So it's going to beg the conversation about light rail or some sort of commuter rail or some sort of express bus service. Um, all of those conversations are needed, whether they're on the Kansas side or on the Missouri side. We're just going to have to deal with this changing transportation need and I think it's going to it's going to force the conversations locally. And uh, I wouldn't expect a whole lot of support from the states, either Kansas or Missouri, and limited support from the federal government. So if it's important to Kansas City, Kansas City is going to have to figure out how to do it. So is there is there enough people around now that are willing to say, yeah, we, we can open our minds to having mass transit, having a rail line from the airport to downtown where you can connect to the streetcar and then kind of branch out from I, there? I think, I think that, that the attitudes are changing. You, you don't have to look back that far 
2013-2014, everyone was saying streetcars will never work. You'll never have a need for fixed rail. We're too car dependent. Mm -hmm. And the ridership in two years, approaching 4 million riders, has proven just the opposite. So if you provide them a quality product... Uh, people will respond. And so I think that as more important people start to realize, well, if I can use this to get to my job, why couldn't I use it to get to my airport? Denver just went through the same thing. They said for years they could – the new Denver airport was too far away. They could never get uh, rail extended out there. They got rail extended out there in their A-line. It's exceeding expectations, and it's driving further economic development, both at Denver International Airport and downtown Denver because you've got those connection issues. So – I'm a firm believer that if, if there's a will, people will find the way. And I think people are beginning to understand the value of having multiple modes of transportation. Uh, cars are expensive, and the infrastructure to support vehicles are very expensive. And so we've got to figure out a different way to provide transportation services in this city. And I, so I'm hopeful that once we get that line down to the UMKC, it'll start the beg the conversation. How do we go east? How do we go west? How do we go south? And how do we go north? Well, I think the Denver conversation is very interesting. My uh, my best friend used to be the, the city manager for the town of Winter Park, Colorado, and he goes, do you realize that you could take off in Germany today, wherever it was in Germany, and you could land in Denver, and you could be up to the mountain in two hours, and you never have to rent a car. You could f- literally fly in from Germany, land, take the train from DIA to Union Station, grab the rail, up to the mountain in, in Winter Park, and you're skiing from two hours that you land, and you never have to rent a car anymore. He goes, that's a game changer yeah, for us. That's exactly how, and that's how that's how the younger generation is looking at it, and so I think that's, and you look at that global environment, they're wanting that connectivity um, issues, and so that's what good cities that plan for that are going are gonna to have a competitive advantage at, rather than saying, well, I got into KCI, now do I have to rent a car? Right. How do I find, you know, the classic example of a, the old KCI, you actually had to go find the phone to hire, find the cabbie to get you, you know, so we've got, we've got a lot of work to do on that end, but that, that terminal allows us to start to change that conversation. We're going to build the terminal with the capability that at some point a rail will fly, slide right into that terminal. Uh, that's part of the preliminary design. So these kind of uh, these kind of options will be available to the city as we move forward. Do do people realize that like we fight about this stuff, but ultimately it's good? Like like how do you convince people that you can bitch and moan all you want about this, but at the end of the day, this is going to work and it's going to be good. Like everything that you guys have done in the last twenty years, for the most part, has turned out better than I think anybody thought. So how do we convince people that are sitting at their home going, "This is never going to work"? To say, "Hey, we need this and we got to force this through because it's going to make us better as a region." Well, I think you have to continue to pre- present the ideas and facts. One of the things I think the, the city has got under Mayor James' leadership is we're, we're much more um, advocates of our stating the position and trying to convince people. If you'd have told me a couple years ago, well, we, we're going to go out and we're going to sell the residents of Kansas City on the need for $800 million general obligation bond program that's going to raise property taxes each year for the next 20 years, and they're going to approve it to, by a two-thirds majority... Uh, just to fix basic infrastructure, I just said, "My God, what are you drinking?" And can you share it with sure. me? Sure. But we had a we had a plan, we, and we and we told a story, and people once they listened to it, they bought into that concept. And I think that's the the conversation we've got to have, and we've got to be able to just present facts and data, let the opposition uh, present their case. Usually, that quickly becomes obvious that they're not as informed. They don't. It's more of a reactionary. We're just against it. Right. Um, and most people, when they're presented with those options, will go, well, that makes sense. But we've got to be, you've got to have aggressive political leadership that are willing to push the agenda. Get back to Mayor Barnes. She took the agenda and said, we're going to fix downtown. But she didn't care. I mean, we need more political leaders like her and like Sly who don't care about the next job, who only want to accomplish what it is that they need to accomplish now here in Kansas City and what's best for Kansas City. You can't worry about getting elected at the state level or the national level. We need more of those type of politicians. Oh, I agree. I agree. It's having, having that window where you've got uh, open, progressive leadership is critical to the city's growth. And we look at other cities, it's it's a sustained progressive leadership at the elected level that can lead the citizenry in these these big ideas moving forward. Those cities are the ones that we're competing against. Indianapolis set out 30 years ago to be the sports amateur sports capital of the world. Everyone's like, well, 
They started by taking the NCAA from us, and right. then they started to build all these facilities, and they built themselves into a reputation, and then they started to build convention facilities, and they have built themselves into a pretty impressive place that you wouldn't have thought Indianapolis 30 years ago was a competition to Kansas City. Denver, the same type of approach. Denver 40 years ago was a city of 100,000 people. Wow. Now it's 700,000 and growing. So those are the types of um, issues that if you have the right kind of progressive, sustained leadership in place, things will happen, but it takes that level of commitment and uh, people that are willing to say, this is good for the city, not my own individual yeah. interest. Yeah, and that, that's hard to do, I think. But All right, so Indy had that vision 30 years ago to be the amateur sports capital. Denver's growing like it is. What's your vision for Kansas City? Well, I, I firmly believe that we, you know, we have an advantage in Kansas City, and it, re- it relates to uh, that we just are in the center of the, of, of the United States. So that is a strength that we have the ability from, from Kansas City, you're two and a half hours to the coast, uh, you're never more than two and a half hours away from anything in the in the United States. So and I think that's an oppor- opportunity uh, that, for whatever reason, we let slide. Back in the 30s and 40s, every plane that was moving from east to west or west to east in this country stopped in Kansas City. And we let, because we didn't invest in that necessary infrastructure, we ceded that ground to other cities. Mm-hmm. We, sit, we let Chicago, we let Dallas, we let Denver step in and fill that void. And the reason, I'm I'm a firm believer that all of that stuff that is now in Denver or in Dallas or in Chicago, because of the price issues in those cities, could relocate over time to Kansas City and we could have the same type of issues. We've got all the competitive advantages. Second largest uh, 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 transportation hub in the United States in terms of rail traffic. We've got a lot of natural advantages from an economic development standpoint that we just have we haven't taken advantage of so my vision is really just to take advantage of that core center of the city uh, uh, location that we've got and then take advantage of everything that works i mean uh, you could be trucking it could be rail it could be shipping it could be pipelines you think about everything that somebody's trying to move something from one part of the city country to the other part of the country where's the natural place for that location to sit. We'll get back to my conversation with Kansas City, Missouri City Manager Troy Schulte in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you about Red Door Grill. It's quickly becoming my family's favorite restaurant in all of Kansas City. From brunch to lunch to dinner to happy hour and everything in between, everyone will find something they love at Red Door Grill. From $5 burgers on Monday to that jalapeno dip fried chicken that's only served on Thursdays, Red Door Grill has something everybody can enjoy. And with happy hour every weekday from 4 until 7, you're sure to cash in on the best drink and appetizer specials in all of Kansas City. So check out one of the three Red Door Grill locations at 159th and Antioch in Overland Park, on 119th Street in Leewood, and of course in the heart of Brookside. And we'll see you at Red Door tonight. All right, let, let's talk about that airport. What the hell happened with that thing? I mean, like, like that took that—that that was something that should have been so easy and turned into one of the biggest political fights we've seen. Why did it get so messed up like that? Well, you know, I think what we really had was, and I, I give a lot of credit to to Burns and McDonald because, to your earlier point, we were still struggling as a city as to why. Why do we need an airport? We had a lot of uh, people that at the end of the day, represented less than 24% of the uh, voters in the in the city saying, driving the conversation, our airport's fine, a remodel would just be fine, what are we worried about it for, it's going to cost taxpayers those dollars. And I give all the credit in the world to Burns and McDonald stepping up and saying, we've got an idea, uh, and we want to uh, build an airport with private funds, a single terminal, we'll take the risk. The airlines have already agreed to fund this amount of money. I was a little surprised by the backlash that Burns and Mac got. Yeah. But the instantaneous response in the community went from why to a debate over how we're going to build it and who's going to build it. Uh, and in the end, it was, a. I think, when we voted in uh, last year to, to approve the, the terminal, uh, it, was, it was one of those situations where when – it was 75%. It was probably a foregone conclusion that people were already supportive of it. So, I, you know, I, I can't give enough credit to Burns and McDonald as a firm for stecking their neck out, saying there's a different way to do it. And I still have people. I the literally the day of the a couple of days before the election, uh, I was going for a physical, and my doctor, who would who would think be well informed, uh, 
uh, as to what's going on. Uh, I was telling him what I did, and he goes, and I was telling him about the airport, and he goes, oh, you mean the one that George Brett's building for us? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, whatever it takes. Right. I mean, and it just moved that whole conversation. And so, you know, the process got messy, but it's like, you know, politics is like the sausage being made. Nobody likes to see it. Right. But they like the end result. And we ended up with a result that 76% of the people in this city said, we're supported, get it done, get it built yesterday. Uh, but, I again, I give all the credit to Burns and McDonald because I really think we as a city would still be debating uh, – whether we should make that investment or not. Now we're well on our way to having that thing open and operational by 2022. So what's your goal for, for the airport? When the new terminal opens, what, what do you envision the Kansas City aviation industry becoming or changing to? Well, I don't think we necessarily want to be a, a, a hub, you know, like a, like a Denver or a Chicago O'Hare or a Dallas-Fort Worth. But I like the concept of kind of mini hubs. I definitely want to see us expand transatlantic service. I would like to add uh, Caribbean service. I'd like to add more South. I'd like to add more international uh, capability. Uh, so I'm, I'm very. Uh, I want to make sure that our initial flights to Iceland are successful, uh, because I think once they prove the market, once you start adding those international um, flights. Uh, Kansas City is in not only competition with the Minneapolis, the Chicago's, the Austin's, the Dallas, the Denver's, but we're also in competition with the Frankfurt, Germany, Helsinki, Finland, London, England. Those types of as as the economy globalizes, we have got to be able to be in a situation where somebody in doing business in Kansas City can be in uh, Europe. Uh, at the start of the next business day, yeah. and that's why that international flight. Uh, offered by Iceland Air was so important because you can leave 6 o'clock on a uh, Wednesday night and you can be at your destination anywhere in continental Europe by about 9 o'clock the Thursday morning, that next morning. And that's huge from a business development standpoint. So we've got to have that capacity as we move forward. We're in a global, a global economy, and so the more issues that we have, so we're going to have more flights, more direct flights, um, to, and more destinations, and the, big, the best way to do that is to just put them all in one terminal and, and then uh, maximize its, its usefulness. You said it's going to be built with a, a slot where the rail can just pull right in, right? Yep. Okay, so what's going to be there now, like a planter or something? Well, probably, well, the plan right now is it'll come into the – it'll have a basement where you'll be exiting to uh, – uh, for uh, uh, people will be – departures will come in, there'll be baggage claim, and then that will be the exit, but there will be a component of it as the, as we design it, that that eventually at some point we could drop rail right into that building. What year is realistic for that? Oh, given the time frame and the distances involved, it's probably in the 20, 2030s at the earliest. Yeah. Um, we'll be lucky to have the extension to UMKC built by the mid-2020s. Mm-hmm. So it's probably in the mid-2030s, early 2040s. Given those time horizons and the distances involved, and it's... 60, 65 million a mile. We got to go 17 miles from downtown. Wow! It's going to be a it's going to be a big undertaking. But it's one of those issues. You start thinking about it today. You start planning for it today, and eventually it'll come to fruition. All right. Let's then let's move on to tomorrow when it comes to sports here in Kansas City because I'm already planning for two new stadiums because in about 12 years we're, these leases are up. Right? These leases are up in about 12 years, and people think that's far off. But think about where you were 12 years ago. Right? Think about where you were in 2000. 2006 and how your life is changing out. Boom, quickly, it's changed in 12 years. That's what we're looking at with these two stadiums right now. There's been some talk about the downtown stadium. I'm a huge proponent of having a downtown stadium. I think we need it. Where are you on that? Oh, I am too. I think it's one of those issues from a uh, from a, just a long-term development. You see, the, again, those cities that have invested in their down, down ballpark, whether it's baseball or football or both, uh, have that much more vibrant of a downtown, have that much more density of development, uh, have a much more uh, rigorous rail system to move people in and out. Um, and so I think at long term, um, it would be it would make sense for at least the baseball stadium to come downtown. Um, and that was kind of the whole uh, kerfluffle that happened a couple of months ago, was really, when you think about it, given the speed of development that we're seeing in, in the greater downtown area and the fact that you're really only 13 years away from having to do something, either sure. extend the leases or have something planned for a replacement, to identify a minimum of four city blocks 
given the speed at which development is occurring in downtown, the city, it's incumbent upon the city and downtown stakeholders to start to do some land use planning just to say, well, what about here? What about here? Do we have enough space? Because those costs, if we, if those go up in residential towers or new office buildings, it becomes, it will become cost prohibitive to get that build, get that property acquired uh, in the future. So it's going to be expensive enough to build a downtown baseball stadium without having to tear down brand new real estate to acquire. So again, because 13 years is, is a figment, uh, it's going to be here in a blink of an eye. Yeah. We've got to start uh, thinking about it. And that's all those investments. The best way to make those investments successful is to make sure that there are people down there. That the goal should be as many people down there, 365 days, 24 hours a day as possible. So you get that by concentrating your assets. Um, and Kansas City, for years, kind of, again, a car-centric approach, pushed everything out so it's convenient to, to get to by car, but mm-hmm. you don't have the development, you don't have the, the density, and you don't allow the other spin-off development. So I'd very much love to see um, a downtown baseball stadium come downtown at some point. But those conversations are real preliminary, and at, at this point, the city was just looking ahead, trying to say, "All right, we're, if we're going to do this, we better start thinking right now about land banking, or getting a getting a, the property owner to willing to bank it, because otherwise, sure, five seven years that property could be gone, and then we don't have any options." Absolutely. So, in in let's say twenty thirty three, will we have downtown baseball? That would be my hope. That would be my hope. But it's going to take. That's going to take. I'm going to need the help of the state. I'm going to need the help of the county. I'm going to need the help of uh, the private sector. And I'm going to need, obviously, the support of the Royals to make that happen. So it's going to take a lot of people working together to pull it off. But there's, there's some passionate people downtown that are already starting those conversations. Um, names, I think, when that would if they heard them, they, they would recognize the companies they're associated with. So uh, I'm hopeful that there will be some progress on that. Who are they? Well, it's it's some of the some of the names you would see when you recognize when you look at buildings downtown and around the metropolitan area. Yeah. Oh, okay. So uh, they've asked for confidentiality, and, and we're just a, the city is a small part in this process. We're just basically saying here's a little bit of money they're raising uh, on the, the the initial downtown baseball study, which was just a site planning, it was one hundred and twenty thousand dollars worth of work. City contributed a third of it. Okay. Uh, over three years, so. Um, there's a whole lot of private sector interest, and, and I haven't been privy to the conversations they're having with the team, but I'm hopeful that something positive will come out. Where are you on location? Like, if you could pick your ideal location for this new stadium, where would it be? Oh, I would love to have it in either in the loop within the, uh, the highway f- uh, of downtown in close proximity to the Sprint Center and to the Power and Light District and in close proximity to that. The, the, the light rail line, the, the streetcar line. Right. But I'm also comfortable with either uh, in the kind of the crossroads area, uh, that area. So something where uh, I've gone to uh, other cities, I make a habit when I'm traveling to go, always try to go to their ballparks. I would like nothing better to be able to sit, eat a hot dog, and look at the skyline right. uh, of the city behind me. And, you know, I ripped on st louis earlier because when, but they have a beautiful baseball stadium as the backdrop of the skyline and it's done wonders for that part of downtown in terms of bringing people to sure can you imagine downtown st louis without bush stadium in downtown st louis? terrible you know so yeah. that's the kind of, i'd love to have something where you can look out into out uh left field or right field and you see the skyline yeah so, uh where it goes i think is a question of economics and availability of land and something that everybody could get behind and support. I remember back in, in the day, I say now, back when uh, the, the Royals were not good, uh, like 01, 02, and all that downtown stadium discussion was there and all the designs were done, and I think they were looking at like 20th and Grand or whatever as a potential location. And obviously that didn't happen, and we spent money to renovate stadiums for whatever reason. I remember hearing from somebody with the Royals that said, we don't want to be the catalyst for downtown redevelopment. We want to be part of the downtown redevelopment. Well, now that the development has been done downtown for the most part, this seemingly would be like the prime time for the Royals where they're not reliant on the ones to bring everybody downtown. They can just kind of hop on the bandwagon and help increase what downtown oh, is. Oh, I agree. I think, I think the conversation what we were having with renovations, it was too much of a, 
uh, a concept of what downtown redevelopment would could be. And like I said, it took it took H and R Block to be that corporate to, to take a risk. It took uh, it took Cordish from Baltimore to take the risk on downtown. That was a big lift to ask the ask the Royals uh, to say, well, I, I've got a known entity here at the at the sports complex to take a risk and come downtown. So I don't blame them at all. I think it's a different conversation now because they don't have to be the initial um, risk taker that that they would. But you know, I, I hope those conversations move forward. I'd love to see it downtown. And then you know, I'd, we financially the big issue is going to be. As long as it's just, ja- and this gets back to our bi-state conversation, yeah. if it's just Jackson County, Missouri, which is arguably has the co- highest concentration of people without means in the metropolitan area, paying the bill to not only upgrade the Royal Kauffman Stadium, but upgrade Arrowhead Stadium, finding a way to separate those two payment structures is going to be a much more affordable way to do it. Otherwise, that cost of renovation or that cost of a new construction it was a half a billion dollars the first time around. Mm-hmm. What's it going to be in 2031? A billion, a billion two, a billion five? Yeah. And so we've got to figure out a way to regionalize that asset because it's a, it's a true regional asset. No doubt. And I think that's where you've got to figure out a way to not only get all the local stakeholders involved, but you've got to figure out a way to get the region to buy into it too because it's going to be an expensive proposition. I, I think a good analogy for sports fans is it's like, you know, the stadiums were built at the same time. They came up together. It's like trying to pay Hosmer $140 million and Moose $140 million. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to do. So I'm not saying we have to choose one or another. We don't. We have to choose both because eventually we will need two new stadiums. So what do you envision on the football side of things? Well, you know, I think that's a conversation that – but to me, I think the conversation could – with the football side could potentially be – they could stay at, at Arrowhead. Uh, we've got a long tradition of tailgating. I think it's an environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying move Arrowhead downtown because I don't want that. Right. I think I think you could make that the, the Arrowhead Stadium complex – potentially do some redevelopment around it and offer some restaurants and those types of issues. We got Denny's. Yeah, you know, and we, you know, so a couple of hotels and, you know, yeah. but you know, kind of like a Gillette site, Stadium yeah, complex type where thing. There's more development. There's always there was a concept floated, oh god, it's probably been 5 or 7 years where Wad M is the development between the two, right? Between Kaufman and Arrowhead of putting a kind of a retail strip in there. Be kind of interesting to to look at. So, but I think all the discussions have been of leaving Arrowhead in place uh, with the room to keep it keep it the way it is, uh, and then looking at a much more concentrated, dense development around a baseball stadium. Yeah, and you can do that with Arrowhead too. I mean, you move Kaufman downtown, you blow out Kaufman, obviously, pave that over, put the hotel, put up stores, restaurants, right. and things like that. Kind of make it a destination right. place for everybody, right. just like they have in it's, Foxborough. It's fun to dream. You got to have partners in it, and, and again, because of the planning horizon. The time to have those conversations is now. Right, you are having right. these conversations. So, um, the time to start planning because twenty thirty one will be here before we know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm sure you guys are obviously invested in these conversations. I'm sure the hunts, the glasses, everybody's involved in what's next because you always have to be looking that far. Right, forward. and I think it's just figuring out what works from an economic standpoint that's affordable both for the taxpayers and uh, shows a return on investment for the team and good for the region. What about the South Loop? Are you guys going to dome that thing? That's kind Which of gets a, domes first, Arrowhead or the South Loop? Uh, I, I, my sense is it might be the South Loop gets done. Um, uh, that's kind of an interesting idea. Again, being led by the private sector, saying how do we how do we fix some of these issues um, coming out of post war urban design when the whole concept was how do we get people out of downtown as fast as possible and the you know, you you look back and you look at our crime problems. You look at uh, our economic uh, disadvantaged population. They were all adversely affected because of the investment this city and the state and the federal government made in pushing these freeways through impoverished areas and vital neighborhoods. So how do you solve that? How do you fix that? Especially when you look at the South Loop, which is creating an artificial divide between uh, downtown and the crossroads area mm-hmm. that creates a physical barrier if you've ever been out there and you walk and you're walking north and the whole concept of just it gives it's a little uneasy sure it is yeah and go, there's cars running down there below you yeah. at 70 mile an hour uh, you're less inclined to take your kid across that you're going to say well i'll just get in my car and drive mm-hmm. uh, those are the types of 
real and perceived barriers that we've got to figure out a way to make our infrastructure function but not be a but not be a barrier. Same thing on the North Loop where we've got all this infrastructure that's at or past its life expectancy. So do we spend hundreds of millions of dollars restoring it or do we look at it in an entirely different way? Can we get with can we get by with a uh, a narrower interstate? Can we look at uh, a capping the North Loop or having fewer exits or doing some of those types of issues? And uh, some of the some people will freak out, say, "Oh, there it goes the city spending money on all these pet projects." But they're really they're expensive projects, but they have long-term planning horizons. And it starts to think about what what's the city we want to be, and how do we fix the mistakes of previous generations who thought the best way to do this was let's get people out of the central city as fast as possible. Now the thinking is. That's the last thing you want to do. You want to make them, get them in here, keep them in here, provide all the accoutrements for what they need within walking distance or bike distance or they can hop on a streetcar. Right. A much more dense environment as a much more thriving environment. Well, so we've, we've just, we're a little late to the game, but those kind of planning, uh, planning stuff, Milwaukee took out a freeway. Yep. Last I heard, the world didn't come to an end. Right. So, you know, I think those are the, types of issues we've got to we've got to continue to wrestle with i think that that plan in dallas that everybody's talking about now that where they capped the freeway and everybody's walking over the top of it now it's like that makes a lot of sense i mean that's something that we need to connect those two areas and now with the lowe's hotel going in it makes even more sense to have something like that connect so people just feel like it's all one you know well it's you know you look at that clyde warren park in dallas it connects their arts district with their downtown business district and it's now become much the way the um, the live block, the living room of the Power and Light District has become kind of the, the focal point where everybody gathers for big events in Dallas. They gather on, on the parkland at uh, Clyde Warren Park. And that's that same kind of a concept. It becomes a community space where you can program it, but it becomes everybody recognizes, hey, just meet me down there on the on the lid mm-hmm. or or whatever that is. And it becomes a way for people to orient and focus themselves. And a tremendous... Uh, gain in economic uh, value in the surrounding areas. What's the next major project for downtown? Well, I think what we've, what I've asked um, downtown to do, because we have really completed all of our to-do lists. That was, we've done two major strategic plans. There was a, a, a Sasaki plan back in the 1980s, and then an update in the uh, in the 1990s that really talked about. All right, we need an arena. We need an entertainment district. We need to relocate businesses down there. We need a downtown convention center hotel. We need a ballroom at our convention center. We need a, an expanded convention center. And you look at that list that was done in the 1990s. It's taken us 20 years. We're, we're we pretty much have checked the last box with the grand open uh, with the groundbreaking of the of the Lowe's Hotel. So now what I'm asking the, um, the downtown council and other stakeholders, let's. Let's partner, raise some money, and let's let's do a community visioning process that sets us. What do we want to accomplish in the next twenty years? It can't be just the city. There's got to be. You're in that kind of situation. You're reliant on uh, the mayor James or the mayor Barnes that says, "We're going to do this come hell or high water." Mm-hmm. That may or may not be the political reality going forward. But if there's community consensus, and if and if you. Everybody kind of saying, well, this is the next big thing, whether it's the lid or whether it's a baseball stadium downtown or uh, taking out I, uh, I-70 over uh, on the north side of the loop. Whatever those projects are, um, there needs to be the start of community consensus about it. And that takes time, but no better time like the present because we've actually got that long-term strategic plan done. Now we need a, a, a new... Uh, the next set of great ideas. How do you get Johnson County along for the ride? I think you bring them into the partner. I think you bring them into the partnership. We've established one thing. I'm most proud of with with Mayor James and uh, Commissioner Eilert and Mayor Holland when he was there, and uh, uh, County Executive Mike Sanders, and now County Executive uh, Frank White was the four largest jurisdictions just get together and talk about these regional initiatives that are going to change the. Uh, change the framework, whether it's transportation, economic development. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the border war between Kansas and Missouri, but that's being done at the state level. There's not this incentive issue between 
Overland Park and Kansas City, Missouri. We've kind of stepped away right. from that conversation. So how do we tackle those regional issues, bring Johnson County into the, the table, and figure out is there something that benefits Johnson County that we can do something that's mutually beneficial? Uh, and, you know, they were – Johnson County stepped up and said, hey, we're willing to invest – when we made an effort to go after the Republican National Convention. Johnson County, and now that was going to be located in Kansas City, Missouri, but it, they realized that hotel rooms would be filled in Overland Park, would be filled in Olathe. Uh, those types of issues um, are important to the region. You know, we're trying to figure out a way with all this fantastic youth sports uh, soccer facilities, why aren't we a destination location for national tournaments for youth soccer? Rather than going to Orlando or Dallas or Charlotte or Minneapolis, why aren't we bringing those people into Kansas City sure. taking advantage of sporting, swope soccer, um, the fields at 135th and Switzer and Overland Park? You start to look at that and you start to say, there's a tremendous economic engine right here that we're not taking advantage of if we start to regionalize those assets. And that's that's been kind of fun to see that process. And out of that becomes, well, if we did that, we can tackle this issue. Here's the regional game. We get everybody gotcha. pulling in the same direction. That makes a lot of sense when you phrase it that way. Will the Urban Youth Academy, speaking of youth sports, will that help 18th and Vine reach its true potential finally? I think so because one of the things that we've got with 18th and Vine now is you've got a whole lot of people coming down that will take advantage of that facility. They're already planning. UMKC's playing its softball games. Yep. They're having a number of baseball That place is unbelievable, by the way. Gorgeous. Gosh. And that's a phenomenal commitment by the Royals to say, not only will we help build it, but we'll operate it for the next 20 years without any support from any local government or any philanthropic support. So I can't give the Royals enough credit for stepping forward. But you start to look at that's an that's an economic engine. You're bringing people down there into a world-class facility, and it's starting to have that spin-off conversation of, well, I've got all these people. We need we need a restaurant, and uh, we need uh, some place for them to do between games. Uh, and it's starting to spur that conversation about development in and around um, the area. And now with the city as the property owner down there, there's a motivated, benevolent property owner that I, says, if we've got a good deal and you've got a great idea, the land or the building could be made available to you at next to nothing yeah. if you're investing in those types of issues. So uh, I'm very confident that 18th and Vine is going to be the next big area just because of what the Urban Youth Baseball Academy does. But there's just there's a lot of potential down there. It's got proximity to downtown. It's uh, crossroads. Uh, there's a lot of jobs in that area, uh, a lot of quality housing stock. So I'm... I'm really confident that in the next five or seven years you'll really start to see some stuff come up. And it all started with the Royals saying, we want to do this and we want to do this in an area that hasn't seen a lot of private sector investment. And that matters. That's huge. It's huge. Absolutely. When we started this, I asked you 20 years ago, did you think Kansas City would look like this? 20 years from now, what do you think Kansas City will look like? I, I think Kansas City is going to still be wrestling with some of the same issues. But what I'm hopeful that you're seeing and that will accelerate is the historic east-west dividing line of Troost Avenue mm-hmm. has moved to, say, Indiana. And so we're pushing, always pushing east in terms of redevelopment, uh, reinvestment in housing stock. Uh, I use this classic example of in Denver, Colorado, you're hard-pressed to find a house within the city limits for less than $150,000. In Kansas City, Missouri, you can find a house with great skyline views, a couple of minutes of downtown, and you can find it for $45,000. That house may need a little bit of work, but there's a whole lot of equity that's just latent in that structure. So my sense is more and more of this stuff happens. The the Kansas City School District gets back to standing on its own two feet, providing a quality education, and they're making good steps in that right direction. You'll see that continued influx of, of development that will encourage not only existing residents but a lot of that infill development so my sense is we'll still be wrestling with our infrastructures worn out uh, we're a big city how do we provide services but hopefully instead of having 470,000 people within the city limits of, of Kansas City Missouri we're talking about 800,000 within the city limits of Kansas City supporting the infrastructure needs of a city of 317 square miles 
airport generating a whole lot of economic economic activity. Our airport today generates about a billion dollars in economic impact to the city. Charlotte, North Carolina, is a ten billion dollar economic impact. That's where our goal should wow. be. Ten billion. I, I haven't looked at Denver's, but Denver's has got to be twenty-five or fifty billion. I mean, so that's the that's the scale of ramping up the leverage that our assets. As long as we build first-class, world-class assets, trying to maximize that return on that investment, so that we're getting ten billion dollars of annual or more economic development off of that billion-dollar terminal. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kansas City, Missouri City Manager Troy Schulte. There's nothing that divides Kansas Cityans and sports fans much like downtown baseball. Many people want downtown baseball to happen, which I do, and a lot of people are against having downtown baseball. It also wonders what's going to happen with Arrowhead Stadium and where that may go. Will they build a new Arrowhead Stadium? Will the Chiefs end up moving to Kansas? There's a lot to be determined over the next few years when it comes to our two local sports teams on the Missouri side of the state line, and it will be a story we'll be following very close. Coming up next, we'll talk with Pat Warren, the Speedway president out at Kansas Speedway. He will be the next guest on the KC Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.